Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting today to over 60 countries from the middle of the third most important centre in the world for entrepreneurs, startup, angels, VCs and incubators, Hollywood, in the middle of Silicon Beach in California, and where entertainment intersects with technology. I want to thank you for making us the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. As you know, we've broadcast the last two shows from Cuba, which is an extraordinary place. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, I fully recommend that you make a trip there before it opens up in October and becomes another Cancun. The, uh, the music's fantastic. The food's good. The architecture is extraordinary. The old cars are wonderful and the people are great and friendly and love Americans. So why we've had a boycott on them for 50-something years is beyond me. But they're certainly um, people that want to be on our side and uh, I'm looking forward to it opening up. Now, over the past 10 years or so, I've worked with uh, startups and early-stage companies to help entrepreneurs develop and run successful businesses. Prior to that, I worked for all the big guys. Um, you know, the Citibanks and the Cokes and the Frito-Lays and all of those people. And uh, working for startups and early-stage businesses is lots of fun. And it's also extremely rewarding. Now, this radio show is about providing news, information and tips to help small business. Um, you know, you, a small business owners got to wear a hell of a lot of hats you know, you've got to be good at about 18 different things that I think at last reckoning, and most entrepreneurs are good at just a couple of those, and one of them is developing their product. But um, unless you can wear the many hats, you're probably going to fail, and that's one of the reasons that uh, the failure rate currently of businesses is somewhere north of 96% and more likely around 99% which is a pretty horrific failure rate. And uh, you know, since the internet and the social media revolution, many entrepreneurs believe that everything that happened before about 10 years ago um, should be discarded because it's been replaced. But that simply isn't true. Um, the, um, we communicate in the same way and people take in information in the same way um, hurt and blind, uh, hurt and bleed, and cry at the same things, and uh, uh, the same techniques that have enticed people to buy from you over the years and built loyalty and return on investment still apply. Um, the means of communicating the message is different, and the message itself is different because we're not selling to people anymore; with we're communicating with them, but. Um, those old tried and true techniques that make businesses successful still apply today as much as they ever have. So, um, and you know, research has identified that the major reason that businesses fail is lack of business knowledge of management. And uh, according to Berkeley School of Communication, only 11% of management have done any business courses or learning since they finished college despite the tumultuous changes that have taken place. If you think about it, if you did your degree 25 years ago, how do you think that stands you in good stead today? The reality is it simply doesn't. It doesn't do you any good whatsoever. So um, you've got to keep up with your knowledge. And another interesting thing is the average business CEO, um, the average Fortune 500 CEO, reads an average of 27 books a year, plus reads journals and, and all of the relevant publications um, for his industry. Yet the average small business and the average startup don't read any. And the reason that they don't read any is because they say they're too busy. 
Well, I'd like to find a small business owner that's as busy, say, as the CEO of Coca-Cola. You know, it's an excuse. It's bad time management. And so, um, you know, and unless you do continue to learn, you are going to continue to fail. So last two or three weeks, I've been going through the 18 keys that uh, are essential for the success of any business. And these 18 keys have been developed over 30-odd years across a wide range of uh, businesses. And uh, I'm not going to go through the whole 18 of them today. Um, But uh, the first, when I started doing this about three weeks ago, I went through the first four, which is... um, Firstly, providing powerful, decisive leadership, a clear business vision, strategy, and plan. Number two, continually learn, understand your competition, and embrace change. Number three is to develop a dynamic marketing strategy and a plan. And number four is to maximize the use of technology in management, production, and distribution. So two weeks ago, I did um, understand what business you're in. It's amazing to me that 90% 90% of the people that I speak to have not got the faintest idea of what business they're in. They believe that um, hardware stores in the hardware business and the computer stores in the computer business, which is absolute bullshit because they're not. Um, number six was create a powerful consumer purchasing benefit, critical to the success of any business. Number seven was build brand equity. You know, most Businesses still think that getting brand awareness is important. Brand awareness is not worth a squirt. It is fucking useless. Unless you've got brand equity, you will lose. And um, they're the ones that we've been through so far. Now, we're going to go through another, I think, three. I'll try and get through three tonight. And uh, so number eight is ensure you've got adequate funding. Um to ride yourself through any um, any troughs and uh, make sure that you've got funding to, if you're a startup, make sure you've got funding to be able to get the business rolling and keep it rolling. Um, and you can do this through Angels VC or crowdfunding. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, number nine is add expertise to your business. You need to have expertise across all of the various disciplines that you need in your business, and there's about a dozen of them. And uh, you've got to sell emotionally, benefits sell, features don't. And if we're lucky, we might get to understand clearly what motivates your customers. So that's what we've done up to date, and that's what we plan to do today. And and there's another, after this, there's another... seven, which we'll go through over the next couple of weeks. Now, these are the minimum basic keys to any successful business. None of them are difficult, but you've got to know them. You've got to know all of them. Otherwise, you will fall behind and you will likely fail. So um, if, if your business has got a weakness with any of these 18 keys, we would propose you sign up for my business and personal audit. Um, Seriously, we analyse every aspect of your business, your competitors, your systems, your marketing, everything about your business. And the benefits from this 60-day audit can be totally game-changing. I mean, it smartens up your business from the front door to the back door. So the first key we're going to address today is key number eight, which is ensuring that you've got adequate funding from either angel, VC or crowdfunding sources. The overwhelming majority of businesses at some time or another require funding and whether the funds are required for starting the business or whether they're required for development of an established business, nearly every entrepreneur at some point in their career needs to raise funds. And it's bloody hard. Nobody's suggesting that it's easy. It's tough. And most entrepreneurs begin by raising funds from their friends and family. That can only go so far. So when that dries up, they seek out angel investors or perhaps they engage in a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo campaign. And as the company grows, they'll then start to seek out venture capitalists. So before you go and 
start seeking out capital from angels, the best advice is to get traction with funds from friends and family. Get the company going. Don't wait for funding. Get early clients or get early letters of intent. Prove that people will buy what you're selling. It's going to make it infinitely easier to raise money. Now, many entrepreneurs think that most angel investing is done by organised groups, but in reality, groups only account for one investment in every 50 of all angel investment dollars. Importantly, only 20% or so of angels make 250 grand a year or have a net worth of more than a million. And this will surprise some people, but the median angel investment investment is only about 10 grand so before trying to raise funds it's important to realize exactly what investors are looking for firstly investors look for factors that reduce the innate risks in startups experience with a previous startup even one that failed is extremely important because what's involved in startups is hard to train for and hard to deal with after that they look for um domain experience and expertise, functional expertise, education, the ability to listen, the ability to learn, uh, flexibility and leadership probably. Generally speaking, entrepreneurs who build teams are more desirable than the do-it-yourself individualist. The first thing angels look for in a proposal is the, pro- is the product market fit, the story of the market need, the problem that your startup's going to resolve and where the need exists. Angels want to be able to understand quickly how big the market is, and it has to be big in order for them to get interested because they've got to get a return on investment. It has to be able to grow fast, to scale up, and to hold off competition. Ultimately, experience shows that nine out of ten investments will fail, so they need they look at every one as if it's the big one that's going to pull them out of the shit for the other nine. And uh, Angel's evaluation of the business plan is not about the document, but about its contents. They want to see from the plan that the startup team understands how to build the business, the key steps, the milestones and the relationships between milestones, budgets, forecasts, strategy and tactics. A great plan is one that shows knowledge of the industry and the team's backgrounds. Don't just put down your six next-door neighbours who have had nothing to do with whatever the hell you're working on. They've got to have experience. And the majority of angels will never invest in a startup that doesn't have a business plan. They will eliminate some projects just from the summaries or from the pitch, but they'll almost never invest without having read or at least looked at a plan. To raise funds, you've got to be skilled, have a professional business plan and team, and be extremely persistent and positive. The ninth key is to have a highly talented team around you, people that have got expertise in the type of product that you're engaging in. As we've said many times, entrepreneurs have to wear many hats, and the more expert assistance you can surround yourself with in the form of mentors, management, and board, the more likelihood there is for you to be successful. You know, there's so many bloody extraordinarily talented and highly experienced people around, and we've attracted many of them to our projects based on the potential of the project and using shareholding as the carrot. Shareholding is pretty attractive to people. The tenth key is to sell emotionally. Now, this is really, really, really important because research shows that all decisions are made emotionally and then they're justified pragmatically. Therefore, it's important to get in get front-of-mind recall, which triggers a positive emotion, which then influences the purchase decision. Providing the value proposition is also positive, it's highly likely that you're going to get the sale. Now, think about when you go to Disneyland. Everybody's excited days before you actually go. Why? Because Disneyland's made an emotional connection with you. It's the happiest place on earth, even for people who've never been. How do you get your people your customers and your internal staff to love you and your product or service as much as they love Disneyland. You give them fantastic service. You pay attention to every detail. You make them feel special. You sell them emotionally. Remember, always sell benefits. People do not ever buy features. For example, 
This PC's got a processor speed of 10 gigahertz. Like, who gives a shit? Nobody. The benefit is that this processor lets you work twice as fast or three times as fast. Wow, that's great. So remember to sell benefits, not features. Ask yourself, how emotional is your sales pitch, your brochures, your advertising? If it's not emotional, you're depriving yourself of your most powerful sales tool. And this applies equally to business to business, not just business to consumer. People, all people, everybody, you included, make business, make decisions, personal and business decisions, emotionally, and you justify them pragmatically, whether it's business to business or business to consumer. And the emotional connection you build with your client means the difference between success and Failure. So now we've discussed 10 of the 18 keys to building a successful business, and I'm going to address more of them next week until I get through the whole 18. It was fun the last couple of weeks broadcasting from Cuba. I'd never been to Cuba. It's always been on my bucket list. I've been to about 70-odd countries, but never there. And I really, really loved it. So as soon as um, this program's over, instead of going and seeing who won Michigan, get on the phone to your travel agency and book a trip. You'll probably have to go through Mexico, but book a trip. It's great. It's well worth it. My guest today is a seasoned digital media entrepreneur, Andrew Fisher. He's also one hell of a good guy, a really, really good guy. He's the CEO and co-founder of Choosel, C-H-O-O-Z-L-E, the leading self-service program. <laughs> programmatic, it's a bloody hard word, digital marketing platform, which now powers media execution for over 800 plus global advertisers. Woo. And uh, Andrew's not only smart and a good, good guy, but he's got a hell of a good thing happening. And I'll be back with Andrew immediately after this break on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where we give you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people, the services that they provide, and what makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult these days to run a successful business and particularly to even create a successful business. And we all need all the help we can get. And that's why I urge you, every week I urge you to surround yourself with mentors and take on board the advice that they give you because um, those that have already been successful, they'll prevent you from making those same mistakes. My guest today is a seasoned digital media entrepreneur, Andrew Fisher, who is the CEO and co-founder of Choosel, the leading self-service programmatic digital marketing platform, which now powers media execution for over 800 global advertisers. 
prior to Chusel, Andrew co-founded and built the RGM Alliance, a premium-focused online advertising network that reaches over 120 million consumers in the United States. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Bob. Let's just start off by what is programmatic uh, advertising? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a it's a pretty interesting subject because programmatic advertising has basically come from nowhere in about the past four to five years um, to evolve into a twenty billion dollar business uh, annually, just in the United States. Globally, it's about one and a half times that size. Um, and what I I kind of equate it to is is kind of the automation of digital advertising, um, not unlike the way. Uh, Wall Street has been evolved over the last few decades. Um, you know, at one point when you wanted to buy a stock, you'd have to go through a full-service broker, uh, jump through multiple hoops, and then have that particular transaction uh, processed. So now, obviously, almost anyone can go online and sign up for a, a fairly efficient account and buy and sell uh, and trade stocks as they please. So it's kind of what's happened in the digital advertising market over the last handful of years. Um, and so it's made it easier uh, for nearly anyone to kind of get into the game. It's been very democratized by programmatic advertising. <coughs> Excuse me. So the, the core kind of tenet um, of programmatic is the ability to buy and sell advertising impressions through a platform in real time. Um, that's kind of the space that we play in here at Chusel. Um, and it enables for both very targeted advertising, uh, but also very scalable advertising. So um, if you can imagine a world even, you know, five years ago, if you wanted to reach a certain demographic uh, or type of person online, you would typically target them by content. If you wanted a sports enthusiast, you go to sports sites. Exactly. If you want automotive, you go to automotive sites. Um, However, with the proliferation of third-party data, um, this now enables uh, programmatic advertisers to target based on the person, not just where they are online. So, for example, very quickly, within a few minutes, you can set up a campaign if you're an auto dealer and say, I just want to target people that I know are in market uh, for a purchase of an SUV in the next three months. And that data will come from a high-quality data provider like Polk Automotive in this case. So, again, um, to put kind of a bow on it, Programmatic advertising is essentially the the automation of digital advertising, often powered by a data element that makes it very efficient to target online um, and do it very quickly and easily and at an auction price that makes sense for each advertiser. So when I go online, I need to know, apart from needing to know exactly who my customer or potential or target market is, do I also need to know the vehicles that I want to buy or will, does it come back and suggest to me that you should do Twitter and Facebook and whatever whatever it is? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that's, that's actually what you're thinking about is something that we think about here at Shoes. And I, I do think that is the next step in programmatic advertising where it will be even much more goal-based. Um, typically, programmatic advertising currently um, is focused on display advertising, um, which broadly encompasses uh, banner advertising, mobile web advertising, mobile and app, video. So it is fairly broad. Um, and even Facebook plays in this through their Facebook exchange. Sure. So it's a, it's a gigantic market on which you can focus. Um, other channels such as Twitter are technically programmatically driven. Um, other social media channels are not necessarily programmatically driven, um, although they may be auction-based. Yep. Uh, they're not fully programmatic per se. So to answer your question, there's still, uh, being a very nascent industry, there's still a, a very large human element for the, the planning, strategy, optimization of these particular campaigns. I think what's really changed over the last few years is that, again, a single person with minimal training can go in and set up exactly um, to achieve your particular goal that you stated, Bob. They could set up multiple ad groups and campaigns and then see what's working best in real time and optimize very quickly. Uh, Typically, that would be very labor-intensive and costly to even test out multiple channels. But again, now you can do it in a very cost-efficient and quick way. Do I need a truckload of money to... um to play in the no. programmatic advertising area? 
No, and again, I think that's another area that's been very democratized. Um, even if a couple of years ago you, you did have to have pretty high minimums because there are only a handful of established programmatic players, um, but as the industry has grown, so as the proliferation of platforms uh, designed for all levels of agencies, marketers, publishers, um, you name it. So there are several ways you can get uh, very focused um, with very low minimums or no minimums at all through different platforms. Um, so absolutely not. And again, you know, people often ask, you know, what is an appropriate minimum budget? It really depends on the particular goals and the target and the timing, of course. Um, but we see advertisers getting us started, uh, getting started in programmatic advertising if they're, you know, local or regional and have a very focused target um, for as low as up, you know, thousand dollars a month or even less sometimes. Wow. Okay. Um, I've got I've got to ask you this. Where did the name Choosel come from? Choose I can choose I guess I can work out. You sort of woke up at three o'clock one morning and go, aha, Choosel. Right. That's it. I've done it. Yep. That's a great question. It's so bloody hard to come up. It's it's so bloody hard to come up with names these days, isn't it? I mean, every name you can possibly come up with has already been taken one way or another. Absolutely. And and this one was originally taken, but we were able to secure it. Um, It actually is is part of our, our history. And, you know, the first version of our platform was much more media creation where people could create uh, rich media ads and other modules that would live within Facebook. And it was really centered around visual voting. So an agency, for example, you know, working for a brand um, like Baskin Robbins, one of our early clients on the prior version of the platform, they could upload several different types of ice cream cakes, as an example, and then share that choosel um, through the platform onto multiple social medias and also convert them into rich media ads. So the name choosel is actually really about customer choice and the ability to engage them uh, via visual voting medium that we powered. Um, and then early on our, you know, after our first launch, um, we had some good traction, but we want to kind of expand because we, a lot of our clients are really asking us about who is interacting with their media. Sure. So this took us down a path um, where we partnered with a few different companies um, on the data side and, and rebuilt Chusel from the ground up to have more of a programmatic approach. Um, and now we do have a, an ad builder still integrated into our platform. So, Part of our core DNA is still in the platform, uh, but it, the story of Chusel is one how we've also evolved, uh, which is a very common story for most startups, as I'm sure you're aware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the biggest um, misconceptions in the marketplace about programmatic advertising? Um, I think you've done one already, that, it's, that it needs to be either complex or expensive to get started. Um, okay. And again, you know, a few years ago, uh, prior to the market being fairly democratized, uh, this certainly was the bastion of big Fortune 500 advertisers and the big ad agency holding companies, um, because the power of a lot of these platforms was very complex, expensive, um, and even if you had the money, you know, the, the resources to learn and operate a platform, uh, it's quite an investment. And so I think that's something that's shifted quite a bit in the last, you know, let's say 24 months or so. Um, with the advent of platforms like Choosel uh, and many others out there, that you don't need to be a programmatic trading expert to get started. You don't need a huge budget, nor do you need a huge time investment. And so it's gotten a lot simpler over time. Um, another misconception um, I would say about programmatic advertising is that it, it's it's uh, it's designed to replace you know all of the forms of advertising, right? It's it's not. It's, it's, it's a channel. It's a medium. It's designed to complement your search efforts. It's designed to complement your direct media buys with specific publishers that you want to have a presence on, uh, whether that's more native or advertorial uh, stylized. And it yeah. also can complement everything that you're doing offline as well. Um, and here at Choosel, you know, we, we leverage our own platform to drive leads. Um, we just came out with a case study that's going to be published later today uh, where we had about a 12 to 1 return using our own platform um, on return on advertising spend. But that also complements what we're doing with our Google AdWords uh, and our search campaigns as well. So it's designed to be very complementary uh, to what you're already doing and can potentially enhance it and or make it more efficient, especially on the digital side. Okay, so if I'm, I'm sitting here, I've got a, a new business and uh, I um, realize that the way to drive it's through new media, using the term loosely, um, rather than traditional. So... I come along to Choosel. Do do you do everything? I mean, if I come along to you and say, look, I don't know where I'm 
going here. I know I need to be using it, new media, and I need to be efficient. Um, can you plan the whole strategy for me? Do you do that, or are you simply in the programmatic side? Yeah, no, another great question. And, you know, we are a technology company. We are a platform. Um, we work with a handful of clients directly. Uh, the ones that we work with directly typically handle their own planning and strategy, and they use our platform for execution. Yeah. <clears throat> our, our most likely uh, avenue for the planning and strategy would be ad agencies, and that's who we partner with most often. And we provide them with our platform. And ad agencies, that's kind of their, their domain of expertise is, media planning strategy, you know, marketing in general, of course, and then the advertising, the digital side as well. So they'll leverage our platform on behalf of their clients. Right. That's, um, you know, we strive to make it very simple for anyone to get started. Um, therefore, if you do want to work directly with Chuzel and sign up at our site, we've got a very robust knowledge center uh, that in, includes uh, videos, uh, essays, you know, information search. And we also have live webinars every week that anyone can tune into. Um, we currently have in beta what's called Chuzel Academy, which is our full education system uh, designed to go into and to train people to use not just Chuzel, but programmatic media in general. Um, so again, we're, we're looking to educate those who want to be completely self-service. Um, and then if you are of a, enough of a, you know, we have, do have a minimum size, we, we can provide full campaign planning solutions for partners as well. Right. Um, Again, we work with a handful of those, but typically our, our channel partner, if you will, is those ad agencies because that tends to be their domain expertise, as I mentioned. Sure. So um, you, you've gone through how um, programmatic advertising has changed over the last couple of years. Where is it going? I mean, where will we be in two years' time, five years' time? Yeah, it's um, – I think your question inherently talks about some of the, the challenges that we face as an industry um, because it's so new and it's been such incredibly high growth. Um, it's going to attract um, bad actors, of course, as well. Sure. And so one of the, the current challenges, I think the industry as a whole is working uh, you know, toward um, eliminating is, is the, the level of fraud, you know, inherent and programmatic because it's so automated. It often can be easier for those to create, you know, potentially fake websites or bot traffic that ultimately helps them yield uh, some revenue. <clears throat> and we've gotten better and better both working uh, with third parties like Integral Ad Science, Moat, um, Ad Yapper, some great companies out there that specialize in you know, fraud prevention and reduction. And you can actually do it before you even bid. Um, so I, I think the industry is maturing nicely. Um, and whereas, you know, fraud is a part of any particular advertising in any medium. Um, it's part of again, almost I, everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. And so it, I kind of have a different philosophy on this, and, you know, this kind of ties in with viewability, too, or the ability to measure w whether an ad was completely viewable, which is an important topic. But also remember that programmatic is auction-based. Um, and so the market really determines... Uh, the price of any particular ad. And my argument is that uh, the fraud, the, the lack of viewability or the, of the viewability, everything's already priced into the market price um, of what you're going to be bidding on. And so although you may have a subsection that could be determined to be fraudulent and or some ads that aren't viewable, uh, based on your overall price, which is incredibly efficient through the programmatic channels, all of those potential downsides are already priced into the auction price, right? So... Um, it's like if you were to buy, you know, a group of stocks, you know, some of those companies could, could potentially have some real issues that may or may not be published, but that should be factored into the risk that you're paying for that particular stock or group of stocks. So, can you can you just walk me through the real-time bidding process and the benefits that this provides to the customer? Uh, I guess the competition um, makes the prices competitive, but just walk through the process for me. Absolutely. So programmatic is kind of the, the bigger umbrella. And programmatic, I would argue, is the automation of online advertising. Right. So programmatic uh, is inclusive of RTV or real-time bidding. So RTV is one subset of programmatic. Uh, programmatic can also include um, buying directly from the New York Times through an online portal. And you're not talking to anyone. It's, it's already been priced. Uh, so it's not auction-based RTV, but it's still automated. So that would be considered programmatic. RTB is uh, 
the largest subset of programmatic, which is the auction-based advertising. So what that essentially means is every time, um, you know, speaking from the publisher side, you visit a particular website um, of a particular content, let's call it ESPN.com, yeah. uh, based on your everything that's tied to your online profile, both on terms of, you know, behavioral history of different sites you visited, and also the ability for the third-party companies, you know, like Experian and Polk, to be able to identify you via cookie match to say, yes, we know this is a particular individual. Um, and again, all this would be anonymous and aggregated, uh, but the idea that uh, there could be several data pieces that say, we know that Bob uh, recently purchased a home, he drives this type of car, he has these types of interests. So therefore, uh, ESPN is able to, in real time, essentially put that impression, that ad impression to reach Bob, again, anonymized, um, in real time. And then you have multiple buy side partners, including Chusel, that will look at that particular impression and based on the data match that we have on our side, so we'll say, yes, that's a particular fit. And so we do want to reach a male of a certain age that has these buying propensities because my advertising partner wants to reach people like Bob in this group. Yeah. And so we will yeah. bid in real time for that particular impression. And again, this particular uh, example happens millions of times, often per second, depending on the, the scale of a campaign, certainly per minute. Um, and then the price defines whether we win that impression and the win rate. And so in this example, there may be you know, 50,000 bobs, if you will, that are in this particular data segment that we're trying to reach. And so we'll bid again and again, and we'll win the uh, high enough percentages of those particular impressions to fulfill our campaign goals. So that's kind of how it happens. And all that happens typically within 10 milliseconds um, with multiple platforms and partners that are basically connecting in real time to confer that the data is correct, that the placement is correct, that the content is correct. And then if it looks good, we'll execute our bid and hopefully win it um, for that particular. And in doing so, then uh, ESPN will call Chusel and say, hey, service your ad. You won the bid. Uh, and then we'll serve the ad for the particular advertisers that wanted to reach Bob and folks like Bob. That Does that not just help the big guys who can afford perhaps a higher bid? Yeah, potentially. Um, it could be argued, though, that because it's a, an efficient auction-based marketplace, um, that those who are willing to invest in targeting and testing uh, will often have the best results. Um, can you control if, you know, Coke comes out and buys an entire swath of a segment um, that could price everyone out of the market temporarily? That can certainly happen, right? And you're, you're starting to pressures on all advertising, including programmatic, because of the, the political campaigns that are heating up for the, the presidential election here in 2016. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so if, if on the off chance, again, you were going up against Coke, you know, for a particular segment, um, that's unfortunate, right? You know, yeah. you may not have many of the impressions because they will all run up that price. Um, but again, the, the, you would argue that the market is efficient. And so whoever wants to pay the most for that particular Advertise, or so the particular advertisement at that moment should be able to win that auction uh, fair and square. However, it still is very efficiently priced, right? If I say I want to bid, you know, $2 for a particular advertisement or $2 per thousand impressions, yeah. the bidder will, will find the efficient price and bid up to $2. So it's not necessarily that you're going to pay the exact highest rate. You may pay $1.86 for some or $1.14 for others. And overall, you'll end up at your, your particular goal. Okay. Yeah. Um, Ad Exchange recently stated that um, programmatic will account for anywhere from 55 to 70%. That's a lot, isn't it? Of global digital ad spend in 2016. Um, is that a, is that an accurate sort of a forecast? Or um, like it, yeah, it's like a hell of a, a hell of a lot. 70% is a hell of a lot for something that's really only you know just a couple of years old. Yeah, it, it's pretty remarkable. And again, I, I would say that it's a the technology driven, you know, as an example, my last business was an online ad network and yeah. we would work with hundreds of publishers and essentially broker deals between groups of those websites and ad agencies. Um, that was kind of a, the first level of efficiency as, as the market evolved. Um, but, you know, folks like me sat in the middle and made very high margins um, that eventually were displaced by technology. And so it's, and again, remember that programmatic isn't just the auction based environment. It's also, private marketplace deals. Sure. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a reflection that, you know, you could consider that 50 to 75% of digital media will be purchased and sold uh, without running through traditional intermediaries such as salespeople um, and media buyers. 
And again, I would argue that that's a, that's a good thing for the overall market. Um, I would agree. <laughs> right. And, and again, I, what I should say is that, you know, relationships still very much do matter in this industry, even though we're, we're technologically driven. Sure. Um, because right now, agencies and brands are trying to understand, you know, which technologies they should be using, how they should be using them, what makes the most sense. Um, and so there's still a lot of personal relationships that set up a lot of these partnerships. Um, and so it's, you know, I've been working with agencies my whole career, and I still spend a lot of time with them uh, and in person. We, But instead of selling media, now we're really selling, you know, technology and platforms and educating them across the board on how to best leverage them as well. Um, so I, I can't argue with that number. Um, it is pretty remarkable how quickly the industry has changed, um, but it doesn't surprise me that it will be upwards of 50 to 75% within a couple of years. Okay. We, this program, um, a large percentage of the audience of this program is um, entrepreneurs, um, startups, early-stage businesses. When, if, you're, if you've got a startup, I mean, there are so many things that you have to be able to do. You have to be able to create a good product. You have to be able to manage a company. You have to be the HR expert. You have to be the finance expert. You've got to be the salesperson. You've got to be the guy who generates the, the revenue. You've got to be everything. Um, is programmatic making life easier or is it making it a lot more confusing for somebody who's... Um, trying to do 27,000 other things at the same time? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, right? And, you know, I, I do love the analogy of, you know, an entrepreneur having to wear, you know, um, so many hats. Yeah. Yeah, constantly, right? And again, you know, um, it's it's part of the thrill and it's part of the learning process. Um, I would say digital advertising as a medium as a whole has made it much easier. Um, and I would say anyone that's enterprising and interested can learn um, how to execute digital media campaigns. And again, not just through platforms, right? Going directly into Facebook right. and Twitter, um, some of the walled gardens, you know, using Google's uh, tools, uh, self-service tools for search advertising. And so it depends on, you know, every entrepreneur, you know, whether that they want to pay a little bit of a premium to work with an expert specialist agency um, to hire them to help. Um, yeah. Ultimately, they may get a better return. Uh, but again, for those who can invest the time and resources, I would say that the efficiencies in digital advertising are a, a huge, if not almost uh, crucial tool for, for any startup business, um, whether it's consumer-facing, whether it's B2B. Um, so again, it can be very complex and intimidating. Um, and so those who, who, who either might feel a little bit more comfortable or technologically savvy can certainly jump in if they haven't already. Um, but if not, there's obviously uh, many great agencies and individuals that can help guide that process. How does, how does one, if you're a small business, how does one decide um, who to select? How do you, how do you decide? I remember when um, the internet was just just in its infancy, everybody who didn't have a job suddenly became a web designer and you know, there was trillions of them, most of them turning out absolute crap. Um, how, do you, how would one tell whether um, a consultant that you selected knows what the hell he's talking about. Yeah, I mean, right, that's an ongoing challenge no matter what industry you're in. Um, I would say, you know, when I don't know much about anything, I try to network through my own um, friends and contacts to find trusted resources yep. to at least get that process started. Um, and I would do the same if I was going out to, to pick an advertising agency or a partner. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd chat with people I know, people that have had success. Um, you know, one rule of thumb, you know, I always do before, before hiring any vendor for anything that we do is obviously asking for resources from other companies like sure. us. And if they're unable to produce those, then it's probably not a good fit or they haven't worked with folks quite like us. Um, with digital advertising in general, there's a, you know, a tremendous amount of resources out there. But one of the upsides as well is that it's ultimately very measurable. Um, and so, and again, you can dip your toe in it. If, if someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, we're going to need a, a $5,000 retainer and a $50,000 budget per month to get started. That's just not either the right fit or they're not speaking the truth to this industry. Ultimately, you can start with smaller budgets and you can measure it, its effectiveness to a particular cost per action. Um, yep. And that's part of the upside of digital marketing. And we do that with all of our sure. partners. We're able to put uh, a smart tag container on their site so we can measure how many people get back to their site and download a white paper, uh, sign up for an event, purchase you know, any particular good. And that's how we're able to measure it. Um, 
Yeah. So again, I, I would say it's not dissimilar to the process with most vendor selection. Um, and the, the, the better expertise you can get through your own personal network, at least to get started, is probably a good way to go. Sure. What is ad fraud? That's a great question. It comes in many different forms. Um, often, it's uh, you'll hear things that are called bots or spiders. Yeah. Um, it's typically a, a programmer, um, often working you know either domestically or internationally, that will either set up sets set up essentially fake websites that will attract traffic that really don't have anything on the website. But they'll fool people like uh, any platform on the buy side to serve an advertisement to their site, so they'll get paid for it. And so it's very much a shell game. They'll set up websites, shut them down, um, and often, you know, this fraudulent traffic they'll be set up to get paid for it. Um, so the, the technology is evolving on the buy side as well, as I mentioned, um, to, to combat this fraud. But it's essentially, yeah, it can it can often be a sometimes a significant percentage of an ad spend, you know, could be dedicated towards fraudulent traffic. Uh, that being said, I think the industry has already policed itself very nicely, um, and you can do things even in programmatic, like, you know, I want to pick a specific site list. I only want to serve on these 100 websites. You can do that, right, to, to greater uh, increase your chance of serving on only quality content that you want to be on. And that's not to, to say that any site could suffer from fraud as well, but you can greatly reduce your risk um, in doing so. So uh, we hear a lot about um big data these days and big data is being used in all sorts of ways for tremendous benefit. Digital advertising obviously leverages a lot of data. So what does big data mean to, to you and your industry? Yes. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, programmatic is really, you know, data goes kind of hand in hand with RTB especially, uh, the ability to match data in real time. And again, what I think is really cool is the democratization um, of this, right? Again, you know, even five years ago, it'd be very difficult to afford, uh, you know, a buy of a data partner, you know, of any sort of scale. Um, on our platform, as an example, you have up to 60 data providers across any number of spectrum. You know, you get super specific if you just want to reach information uh, technology professionals um, or cybersecurity professionals up to demographic specificity, you know, purchase behavior, brand affinity. So we leverage big data in the sense that we aggregate multiple third-party partners and can apply that data in real time quickly to ad campaign. Um, so that was, that was what is what I would call big data, uh, which is, I think is a, hopefully a term that's not necessarily dying, but evolving um, yeah. to be more. Um, and then, so that's third-party data. Um, and on the other side, you know, the first-party data is the assets. The difference between third-party and first-party, third-party is, is someone else's data that you're essentially leasing for targeting purposes. So I'm going to lease a data set from Experian to target, you know, bicycle enthusiasts. Right. Uh, the first-party data is just that. It, it's data that a particular brand or agency uh, in conjunction own. So first-party data can be uh, people that visit your website that you're able to tag and retarget to them. That's a first-party data set. Another example is the onboarding of your CRM into a platform like Chuzel, uh, or we can take your email list of a thousand or a million, upload those, and provide a digital match to their ID online and able to serve them advertising across the web or other social channels as well. Um, so that's where you kind of have to combine on the first party and third party data sets uh, for digital advertising targeting, which overall is a subset of big data, if you will. Okay, so what are the most important considerations? Um, for brands looking to get involved in data-driven digital advertising? I'm sorry, can you repeat that, Bob? So what are the most important considerations or what steps should they take brands looking to get involved in data-driven digital advertising? What, what are the steps? Yeah, again, I, depending on the size of the brand, um, if they have an in-house digital specialist or someone that um, has a little bit of knowledge within the space, this is something to get started doing with right away and experimental testing, uh, both within the walled garden systems and through the, the open exchange environment, which is where programmatic uh, essentially exists. Um, and if not, uh, if, or if they're a larger company, it's likely that they're already working with an agency. Uh, and the agency may have some, some sort of expertise within digital marketing and programmatic in general. Uh, if not, they may have to find a specialist agency that could help them out as well. Um, but that's the nice thing about digital advertising. Unlike, you know, for an example, you know, buying a, a print ad that costs $50,000 or a series of TV commercials, yeah. you really can test incrementally 
on a digital uh, medium to see what works, optimize, refine, and that's really part of the cycle. Um, and so, again, you don't have to have very large budgets to get started. And over time, with the optimization and understanding of you know, the real-time feedback on your reporting, you can figure out what's working and what's not. So I'd encourage anyone that's looking to get started, they can jump right in. Um, they, can, they can, again, go into a Facebook or a Twitter or a LinkedIn and set up their campaigns on their own. Most of those, uh, the self-service tools in those platforms are pretty straightforward um, and simple to learn. Um, and then the open exchange environment through folks like Choosel and many others. Um, and then if not, if you are a bigger brand or growing um, and you have some relationship with agencies or already work with an agency, you know, pick their brain see if they have that digital expertise. And, and if that's not their domain, it may be worth interviewing some other agencies or intermediaries as well uh, to kind of get that, that first step in the, uh, the first kind of, you know, foray into digital advertising. Andrew Fisher. Thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you'd like to know more about programmatic digital marketing, go to choosel.com. That's C-H-O-O-Z-L-E.com. I love that name. I think it's great. It just sort of rolls off the tongue, choosel.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit radio show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. This week being broadcast from our new studio on Hollywood Boulevard, where entertainment meets technology. Now, regardless of your industry, the marketplace continually evolving at an increasing pace. It's scary. The reason is the evolution of disruptive technology. Disruptive technologies are enhanced or new technological innovations that essentially displace conventional and established technology, rendering it obsolete in most cases. They can create opportunities for new products, new markets, and new ways of conducting business. This year, business models will again change as businesses adapt. The enhancement of current technology and the development of new innovations will undeniably transform how new businesses are established and how existing businesses compete. For small and medium-sized firms, technology will also enable significant leaps forward in terms of innovation, efficiency and competitiveness. Adapting quickly is going to be absolutely essential. So here's the top six disruptive technologies that you should be prepared for. The first is social robotics. Robots are no longer restricted to the factory floor. They're increasingly being designed to interact directly with humans. This not only means that depending on your industry, certain robots may be about to enter your product ranges, but also that a robot might be interacting with customers on your behalf. The emotion-sensing Pepper robot, created by TTG Asia, has just been hired to work on cruise ships. Robots have been previously fixed to the factory floor, but in 2016 they're becoming much smaller, more collaborative, more flexible, more affordable, and they're beginning to make it possible for small companies to expand, such as Skyline Windows in New York, which relies on robots for installation of its windows. The second disruptive technology we need to be aware of is artificial intelligence and smart services. This is a scary one, I reckon. True artificial intelligence, which is so similar to human intelligence that it is virtually indistinguishable. It's difficult to develop, but that doesn't mean we won't be running into it very soon. Consider the applications of a machine or a service that could learn about your customers going beyond website analytics to truly understand their day-to-day behaviour. 
or IBM's Watson, which uses natural language processing to enable partnerships between people and computers. The same technology could help you with business concerns from staffing to strategy. While we're not quite there yet, imagine how smart services like Apple's Siri are already becoming more ubiquitous as smartphone ownership increases. The third disruptive technology that will begin to make a difference in 2016 is virtual reality. Originally considered a gaming technology, virtual reality is becoming more mainstream and the applications for businesses and consumers are plentiful. They are everywhere. Consider how you could apply a completely immersive environment in your business and how this might change the competitive landscape in your industry. For instance, in 2015, Volvo offered virtual reality test drives using Google's mass-produced virtual reality technology. The technology has also been used to provide tours, make events more immersive, and even for training. One disruptive technology that's already having a profound effect on business is 3D printing. Just as virtual reality offers us the ability to bring our thoughts into reality for consumers or colleagues, 3D printing offers us the chance to do this with physical reality. 3D printing lets us bring imagination into the physical world. Whether we're showcasing prototype products to investors or custom making products for consumers, I've had to have a couple of products that I've needed made on 3D printers because just couldn't buy the parts anymore and uh, 3D printing, get the broken one, get the design done and off you go. 3D modelling and 3D printing are gradually changing consumer markets and have been used to create a wide range of products including musical instruments, medical equipment, artificial organs, manufactured car parts, truckloads of them. Another disruptive technology that is absolutely exploding in 2016 is the Internet of Things, I-O-T. We already know that everyone's connected, but what about everything being connected? This is the reality that the Internet of Things is going to bring us. From small changes, your car commuting, communicating with your office to switch on the air conditioning, computer and coffee machines before you arrive, to larger changes like your global office has been truly connected beyond what it's already being offered and allows users to hush a smoke alarm from a smartphone. A special, you know, what this does is allow the smoke alarm to speak to smart devices. The treatment of security and privacy concerns will determine the speed with which the Internet of Things roll out. A lot of this is going to depend on government, and we all know how slow government is. And developments in near-field communication technology allow us to know where consumers are and means that we can potentially send them relevant promotions based on their location or remember their preferences for a whole new take on customer loyalty. Consumers are also taking up wearable technology such as smart watches, pedometers, earpieces, clothes, and this wearable technology working with data on patterns and behaviour could not only empower consumer interactions but make for more efficient, productive and happier employees. Smart clothes are potentially the future of wearables. It'd be great, you buy one pair of shoes and you just push a button on your smartphone and keep changing the colour. How cool is that? Instead of having 53 different things in your wardrobe. OM Signal already offers a line of smart shirts and soon a sports bra which tracks biometric fitness data. So disruptive technologies are going to significantly influence our business models over the next few decades. A recent report from the Economist Intelligence Unit, Enrico, stated that businesses will have nowhere to hide from the disrupting yet energising effects of technology change. There's certainly nothing to be fearful of. It's something to be excited about and get, you know, really charge our batteries. The report suggests it's no longer viable to implement new technological innovations simply for short-term efficiency gains. Instead, technology disruption necessitates the implementation of new changes over time for longer-term efficiency gains. 
I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're pleased to be uh, to be bringing you this show since 2011. And if you're a regular listener to the show and are benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. In the meanwhile, remember that if you're not really pushing the envelope, I mean really pushing the envelope, and if you're not living right on the edge, you're taking up far too much space. Get out of the road. Let somebody who wants to achieve get past you. You know, it's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the mundane and the bloody ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard. And I look forward to your company again next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.